Today, I have a good friend of mine, uh, John Katsos. How are you doing, Ali? I'm good, man. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Quick backstory, guys. I was having a very interesting discussion a few weeks back with John about what sustainability really is or what it means to be sustainable. And that conversation spiraled into something really interesting. And uh, John put together a little uh, article he has on his uh, his Medium account. Uh, and I'll share the link um, underneath the podcast for you guys to check out. I invited him to come, you know, to do a podcast with me and essentially talk about that same article. But before we get into that, John, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself a little bit. Yeah, sure. So I'm John Katzos. I, I teach business ethics and business law at the American University of Sharjah. Uh, I also am the academic uh, coordinator for all of AUS on sustainability. I'm a lawyer by training. So I sort of fell into sustainability because I wasn't trained for it. So like a lot of people who are in sustainability, I don't have a specific degree in it or anything like that. But instead, a lot of my research is on sustainability on the social side, which we'll talk about, I guess, in a little bit. That's fantastic. And yeah, and I've been in, I've been in the UAE for eight years. Oh, that's great. Let's jump right into it. What is sustainability and, and what is it not? Sustainability is all about making the world some way in which the future generations can have the same amount that we have today. That's it. At its fundamental level, that's what it's about. But a lot of people get confused because they think it's just about natural resources. So they think it's about making sure that we have the same, that our, the future generations have the same natural resources that we have today. And that's part of it, but it's more than just that. So making sure that the future generations have what we have also means making sure we have social policies and societal rules that allow the earth to continue to function in relative peace. And it also means having economic policies and rules that make the world not just more fair, but also more wealthy. Great. Great. Thanks. I think that clarifies a lot. Um, when we were talking about sustainability last week, we got into Tesla also. And, and Tesla, you know, I can't think of a single person I know who hasn't heard of or knows of Tesla. Dubai has a ton of them. You see them everywhere on the roads, in the streets, the the vehicles. How would you describe what Tesla is? I would describe them as a luxury car company for very wealthy people, not for regular people. Mm -hmm. And on the side, they also happen to be an electric car company. So this idea that they're first an electric car company and then a luxury brand is, I think, off. I think they're first a luxury brand. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they make electric cars is just part of their value proposition of them being a luxury brand. They've got a new model coming out soon, and it's supposed to be reasonably priced. I mean, the, the most reasonably priced electric vehicles that you can get are the mass model ones that are made by Chevy and Nissan mm -hmm. and Renault. If you want a mass market car, you go to a mass market car seller. Tesla is not going to be able to produce the number of cars that are necessary for them to be a more mass market producers, at least not anytime soon. So even for those people who have signed up for the cheaper version mm -hmm. are still really signing up for just a cheaper luxury car. If you if okay. you have the ability to wait for six months to a year to get a car, it means you don't really need it. True. That's true there. The wait lists are quite exhaustive at times. Um, you mentioned other brands, and I don't know, we've talked about this also. Yeah. Um, the Chevy's got a Bolt that is available currently in the region. Nissan has a, a new Leaf coming out. Yep. And what was the third one? The Renault Zoe. 
Um, so Renault sells an electric vehicle primarily in Europe that they've brought here to the UAE. Mm-hmm. It's the, the I would say the biggest difference is that the install the installation of the electrical unit in your home is more necessary. So it's a much longer charge if you're just charging directly from a wall socket. Okay. Um, but otherwise, it's it's like a regular four door Renault. So these are at least three models that we know that are going to be available or are available in the UAE yeah. around the corner. How do you think uh, consumers will will look at these guys versus the Tesla? I think it's a lot of it comes down to price and then reliability. So I think a lot of people on the price side are still very surprised at how expensive some of the electric cars are mm-hmm. as compared to normal, um, quote unquote, normal fuel engines. So the Renault, the Zoe, for instance, is being quoted in the showrooms for 143,000 dirham. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make a lot of sense for most consumers, and so, which means it's being priced against the Tesla. It's not being yeah. priced against the equivalent uh, gas-powered car. It's a shame because in the in the in Europe, in the U.S., in Australia, they're being priced as competitive with regular cars of the same size and the same build. So. All right. That's that's one issue. The other issue is reliability. There haven't been enough electric cars running in the UAE for everybody to feel confident that the batteries will hold up in the heat. And I think for a lot of consumers, that's going to continue to be a worry until they show that they can do it. And they will. I think they'll be mm-hmm. fine and they'll yeah. make it work. But for many consumers, I think they are worried about the how the batteries will hold up in the heat. The, the temperatures that we have here are more extreme than basically anywhere else in the world. And then combine that with the dust... And you potentially have difficulties for the car. And that's understandable. I agree with you on that assessment uh, wholeheartedly. I think you're right. The heat and the dust definitely will, are an important factor to take into consideration. What's the magic number? I mean, have you, have you, I'm just asking off the top of my head, have you thought about it? I mean, we've had gas prices, uh, which are significantly different than what they were last mm-hmm. year. And they seem to be kind of going up mm-hmm. every, every few months. It goes a little bit down, then it goes a little bit up, but Overall, it's still uh, an upwards trajectory. Mm-hmm. Is there a magic number of how much I should spend on an electric car? So to a certain extent, it depends on what the other car you're considering is. But even if you're considering an SUV, take the Zoe, for example. If you're comparing it to an equivalent Renault of equivalent size, it's about half the price. So the equivalent Renault is closer to 70,000 dirham as okay. opposed to 143,000, which the, the Zoe is. At that rate, with the payment of electricity and everything that you'd have to do for the Zoe, you'd have to drive the car for 15 years to get any payback, right? And it would depend, yeah. obviously, on how much you drive, what the distances are. Okay, if you're commuting in every day to Dubai from Sharjah, the payback period will obviously be shorter, mm-hmm. right? The amount of gas that you're spending is much less. But if you're filling up the car once or twice a week, between the electricity costs and, and everything else, it's the payback period is just not there for 143,000 dirham. So we need to close that gap before more consumers will jump on it. Yeah, and I think the question is, why is it priced that way in the UAE? So those are not the prices in Europe. And those huh, are, they're, they're, not the, they're not equivalent Europe they prices. Are, they are not equivalent prices. So it's depending on which country you're in, it's between 30 to 50% higher. So again, this, this, these cars are generally priced much more competitively in, in Europe and the U.S. The other thing that brings the price down in Europe and the U.S. is there's lots of subsidies. So okay. even if the price is higher, there's government tax breaks, there's toll relief. So you won't pay, for instance, the equivalent of SOLIC you wouldn't pay mm-hmm. um, if you had an electric vehicle. 
all those reduce the cost of ownership. And so it makes it much more price competitive, even if it's, let's say, 10 or 15,000 dirham more expensive, it's offset by the tax breaks and by the, the limitation on paying tolls. Oh, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's great. Let me, let me circle back to Tesla and, you know, the interesting discussion we had. If you could just, you know, share a little bit about why you feel Tesla is not sustainable. Well, so I'll start by saying I think Elon Musk is innovative and creative and, and amazing. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the fact that he signed the giving pledge to give away the vast majority of his income is fantastic. I think a lot of the things that he's doing post his life at PayPal is great. Mm-hmm. That having been said, the company itself is highly inefficient. So as a, just a sort of a primary matter, it uses 40% more material than it needs because of the inefficiencies in their production process. Compare that with anywhere from 3 to 6% for the other major manufacturers. So the other manufacturers, granted, they have a 100-year head start in some cases, but they use very little waste. Um, there's very little wastage in their process, and when there is, they're very good at recycling and reusing things. On top of that, Electric vehicles, in some ways, are more sustainable if you look solely at greenhouse gas emissions. So if you were to look solely at the greenhouse gas emissions of a, an electric car versus a gas-powered car, you see it's probably half better. But the reason it's only half better and not, say, 100% better is, is a couple of reasons. First, most electricity is still generated by oil. So when you're plugging it into the wall, you're plugging it into oil. That oil-based process happens to be substantially more efficient than an internal combustion engine. So, so you're getting some savings there. In places like the U.S. and increasingly in the UAE where there's renewables, then you're getting that savings as well. So however, mm-hmm. whatever percentage of the grid is not coming from fossil fuels, you're getting that savings too in greenhouse gas emissions. Okay. But if your electric grid is entirely coal, oil, gas dependent, the savings that you're getting in terms of greenhouse gas emissions are not nearly as much as people think they are. All right, but we're seeing a, that that's a shift. You yeah, know, we're, we're going course. from uh, uh, countries which are completely fossil fuel dependent and we're seeing a major shift. Some of the European countries are way ahead of everybody else when it comes to that. We know that the UAE is also heavily invested in solar yeah. and working on so many renewable energy sources. So that's eventually going to shift. And that's something that not really in my control, right? But I can at True. least buy the electric car. So if we go with the assumption that the the power that I'm getting or, you know, if I have a little bit of extra cash, I'll put like a little couple of solar panels on my house and charge from that. Let's say let's go with that argument. Are we still not sustainable? Yeah, I think in Tesla's case, again, unlike the other electric vehicles that are available on the market, the other electric vehicles are produced with relatively little waste. Um, They're also produced with supply chains that keep in mind environmental conservation. And then the final bit, which is the probably the toughest part, Tesla simply doesn't report any of this information. So a lot of this, a lot of the information about their material sustainability, where they're getting their lithium from, a lot of that is sometimes it's speculation, sometimes it's in their publicly available reports. Okay. But all the other car manufacturers put out very detailed sustainability reports where they indicate where their products come from, where they source their lithium, where they source all their parts, and so it's a much more transparent process. In Tesla's case, we simply don't know for some of the things where they source their products. Um, we don't know where they're sourcing some of their um, some of their lithium from. We don't know where they're sourcing a lot of their metals from. 
a lot of that they want to keep proprietary, which is understandable. But as the other car companies have shown, you can do it. You can be transparent without necessarily giving up the game. That's very interesting. A couple of days, or maybe it was last week, uh, Elon Musk had posted a bunch of videos comparing the crash test results of you know his car, uh, with the Teslas, with some other yeah. big brand names. But they still haven't opened about their opened up about their reporting. Yeah, so you would expect a company like Tesla to be doing integrated sustainability reporting, which is what all the mm-hmm. big auto manufacturers do. I think it's just not a priority. Um, the priority is to get the cars off the line um, because they're starting something from from scratch. Yeah. Whereas the other companies can put the resources into actually doing it. Mm-hmm. I think it's a mistake. I think Tesla, when you're starting something from the ground up, it's much easier to actually begin those reporting structures. To build it right. You just build it right. Um, and then you can automatically have the information from the start about what's wrong, what's right, what can we do better. And you can be open with all of your stakeholders. I'm not, I, I can't speculate as to why they're not doing it um, other than they just have, they feel like they have better things to worry about. It's also a tech mindset. So there's this tech mindset of just get it done. And that's okay. That works for certain instances, but these car companies don't think it's not that they don't want to get it done. They want to get it done, but they also understand that mm-hmm. they have reporting obligations to the general public that they feel like they want to meet. That's very interesting. I'm actually feeling less guilty for driving my uh, my my pickup truck now. <laughs> you know that that six liter V8 don't gas feel, guzzler. Don't feel that much less guilty. Not that much. Not like that, that much <laughs> less guilty. All right, so. If I can't get a Tesla and be, you know, sustainable and green, what do I do? What, where, where, what can, what can I do today? Where's the future of sustainability? What do we need to do? How do we get on track? What is the track? Where are we? I think the hardest thing to explain to people, and I'm in this regard, I'm probably the least sustainability guy you could talk to in the sense that the individual actions that you can do are going to be remarkably small as compared to the institutional actions of big groups that you're a part of. So whatever groups you're a part of, whether that's social organizations, companies that you work for, uh, people you do people you do business with or companies that you have partnerships with, all of those organizations have substantially more power to shape the world from a sustainability perspective than you do. So in many ways, the best thing that people can do is to advocate for those things with those organizations. So to give a small example, the government of Dubai and the government of the UAE are doing more than all the whole population combined by switching to renewable sources. So by Abu Dhabi building the nuclear facilities, by the Mohammed bin Rashid Solar City expanding, mm-hmm. those things have a bigger impact than all of the individual efforts we could do combined. The reason they do those things is not just because they have foresight, which they do, but it's also because people want it. Mm-hmm. And and the more people clamor for those sorts of things and they, they express their wishes that that's the way they want uh, their institutions to move in the direction of, the more people are going to do it. And we see this with companies all the time too. So the more consumers demand that their companies produce products that are produced sustainably, mm-hmm. the more those companies are going to meet those expectations. But if consumers don't demand it, if when they don't buy something, they don't fill out those little cards yeah. that say, I'm not buying this because it's not sustainably produced, people, those companies are not going to move in those directions. And that's where the by far the biggest impact is going to be of each individual's uh, sustainability contribution. The numbers definitely add up on that. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. 
So as an individual, mm-hmm. so not necessarily the actions I will take on as an individual have a massive impact, but the influence that I might have within my organization or my social group. What do I need to push? What's the party line? What what do I what do I tell them? I'm like, hey, make this happen or make this not happen or what, what am I talking about? What am I going to tell them? So I think uh, that's a great question, and it comes down back to what we were all taught in grade school. <clears throat> so everyone was taught reduce, reuse, and recycle. What most people don't realize is that is the order of priority. So the first thing is to reduce consumption as much as you can reduce it. And in your social groups, make that a thing. So make it. don't make it a good thing that you've bought the newest product or the newest object. It should be a good thing that you keep using the things that you you need okay um, and you don't buy when you don't need to buy and then when you do mm-hmm. buy try as best you can to reuse right so mm-hmm. reuse the things that you already have in new and different ways and i think what you'll find is people are amazingly creative and part of that is the power of the internet to spread abilities to reuse things so you can just go on pinterest and find yeah. new ways to use whatever it is you think you need to throw away mm-hmm. And then finally, the final piece is then re- recycling, right? Recycling is the last thing you should you should think about um, after reducing and reusing. And for that, again, it's an issue of finding out the information. Everywhere in the UAE, you've got the ability to recycle. Sometimes it's not convenient, right? Yeah. And that's I, I think that's something that everybody's been working on from private companies to the government to try to make it more convenient for everyone. Mm-hmm. But e- almost every product you have, you can recycle in the UAE. Right? Okay. We have those abilities. That's great. But this, this again is what we need to do as individuals. Yeah. What am I going to go talk to my organization about? Yeah. The I, same or, or do we have specific initiatives that we can tell the organizations, hey, let's get involved with this or, hey, have you done an audit of some sorts to, to show where your power consumption is going and is there ways to curb that? Is there something we can do and we can push at the institutional level? I think the first thing for institutions is to get the information. Okay. So for a lot of institutions, if they have sustainability information, they will want to share it. So it's important that you ask for it. And if it's not there, I've seen lots of people and companies ask for it, been told we don't have that, and then become the champions for it. Right? So it becomes the thing that you do and you get mm-hmm. a group of volunteers together and you start tracking the information. Okay. That's By a- information, can, can, can you give me an example? Sure. So you'd want to track information... That some of it is easy, like how much electricity are you using? Okay. Because that's something that someone else, CWA or DWA or FEWA, is giving you. Mm-hmm. But then there's other things like what's the what's the weight of everything we're recycling? Not every recycling pickup does that. Um, so finding out that information is important. Similarly, finding out information about how workers are treated is important, right? Finding out information about how you know what kind of maternity leave policies the company has, even okay. if you're a guy. Right. These are still important questions to find out, if only not to accuse the company of doing anything yeah. bad, not to do that, but to try to get a baseline of where we're at right now. And then within your company, figure out where to pinpoint to move the ball. Nice. No, that definitely makes sense. Great. This has been very, very informative. I'm we're, glad. We're not done yet. We're okay. Not done yet. Um, so... So everybody, you know, John has been kind enough to kind of educate us on what sustainability really is. We had a nice chat about what Tesla is not, which I found very, very intriguing, even the first time we had it. 
And uh, I think the big takeaway is how we can get involved with our organizations, how we can get involved with the companies and the social groups that we're part of and kind of push this and, and make it an active part of our life. Because I think if everyone's pushing, something can, is going to get done. Mm. Last question. And this is a question my son came up with. He said there should be a question for the season. Because, you know, okay. apparently the podcasts are like television shows and there's supposed to be a season, which I don't know, but... I guess so. So we're season one, episode one now. And the question for this season that all my guests have to answer is, what is the weirdest thing that you have ever eaten? The weirdest thing I've ever eaten, I didn't realize was weird when I ate it. When I went to Malaysia a few years ago, I got this chocolate covered fruit. And when I ate it, I didn't realize what it was until about five minutes later, my breath was disgusting. And I realized I had eaten durian. <laughs> and I knew in theory what durian was, but I had never <laughs> actually seen it or tasted it. So when I was tasting this chocolate covered durian, not knowing that it was durian, I thought, oh, this is really good. It's quite nice. This is this great local Malay fruit. And then I'm walking around smelling this horrible smell and then realizing it's me. <laughs> So that I would say that's the weirdest thing I've ever eaten. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, just to wrap up, where can our listeners find you? And where can they read about stuff that you write? So um, you can always find me on Medium. It's just, if you just search John Katzos on Medium or on LinkedIn, you can always um, click on the link and, and read the work that I'm, I've been working on recently. I usually publish once or twice a week. Um, and then feel free to friend me on LinkedIn. I'll, I'm always willing to connect with somebody. If, if your job title includes business development or sales, I need to know you <laughs> in order to in order to in order to uh, friend you. But beyond that, uh, always look out for me on Twitter as well at JE Katzos. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Ali. Thanks for having me. This is great.